You're muted, Peter. Well, thank you that for that, Marty. I'm muted. Technical glitches every time we turn these sessions on and off. Welcome back to uh, Core Connects Real Estate Jobs Act and Tokenization Summit um, for today's afternoon session. Uh, we're going to be continuing on uh, a little bit of a departure from uh, Reg CF and Reg A um, and the investor community from the public at large and, and uh, the crowd. And we're going to focus on a little bit more on what regulations should we be used for real estate for the accredited and the institutional investors and focusing on reg D's and reg S's and where they fit into the landscape. Um, it's my pleasure to have uh, two experts in their field of securities, tokenization, real estate, and most importantly, the law and the ever-changing regulatory landscape. I'd like to welcome uh, Marty Tate, partner at uh, Kunzler Bean and Adamson, and Tyler Hatraft, partner at Bull, at Bull Blockchain Law. There's a tongue twister. Good to see you both and uh, good to see you again from yesterday, Tyler. Yeah, thanks very much for having me, Peter. Um, yeah, and Mar Marty, welcome. I know you. we've had uh, with Core Connects relationship, numerous conversations and, and your guidance and tutelage um, as far as regulations go and, and the ever-changing landscape are very, very much appreciated. So, so welcome and it's a pleasure to have you here. Um, I want to jump on, jump into, uh, you know, we, the last session we talked fairly extensively on Reg D, but I think it's super important to, to uh, go over Reg Ds and Reg Ss. We wanted to touch on it today. Uh, Reg Ss are used a little bit less frequently um, since the adoption of Regulation A+. Um, but I'm going to turn it over to you two and... Uh, Maybe give me a bit of the, the definitions and the differences between the Reg A's and the Reg S's and what the filing requirements are from a legal perspective. Um, who wants to take over on that first, first question? Uh, Marty, you want to jump in on that? Sure. Sure. Happy to. Um, yeah. So a reg, Regulation D is, is a safe harbor private placement um, exemption. It's uh, an exemption from registration. It's um, it, like I said, it's a safe harbor that basically um, consists of a few rules, the most common of which is, is rule 506, um, the most commonly used. And it basically says if you, you know, meet these requirements, then your, your exemption or your offering is falls within the safe harbor of, of a private placement and does not need to be registered or is exempt from registration. Um, and like I said, for traditional real estate financing and, and probably financing in general, it's, it's the most common exemption that's um, used to, to raise capital. Um, think okay. of, you know, any, think of your, a real estate fund or, or a real estate syndication or even a private or a private, venture capital fund, all those are, are going to rely on, typically rely on, on a reg D exemption. So, so you touched on 506 C, which is, I can do general solicitation. I think that's, but I also hear the term 506 B. Um, and 
there's a difference between the two. So maybe you can give the audience a little bit of a quick overview on that, the pros and the cons. Tyler, you sure. want to jump in on that or Marty, other way? Go for it, Tyler. Yeah, sure. Um, so yeah, 506B is, is quite different in that it allows you to raise raise money from non-accredited investors up to 35 of them. Um, but the big kicker is that you cannot generally solicit. So you're not able to go out and advertise, use a website, social media marketing, anything like that. Um, it's really an exemption that's primarily used by uh, individuals who have pre-existing relationships with investors. Um, it's also referred to as the friends and family exemption. So to the extent you want to bring in people who are not accredited, it provides a, a, an opportunity for that. Um, but, you know, the majority of, of raises that that we see and, you know, that are ongoing out there in the market are, are your 506C raises. And the 506C were limited to 2000 accredited investors before I'm fully reporting. Is that my understanding? Yeah, and not so much an offering restriction in that it's a it's a separate um, restriction that applies to to all companies. Once you hit that 2000 investor threshold and a, a 10 million in assets um, value, then then that 12G Exchange Act regulation kicks in. And so you have to become a reporting company, um, but you have to meet both both prongs of the test. So. We know that a 506C, I can do general solicitation. What are some of the parameters around a general solicitation? Um, what do I need to disclose? What can I say? What I, can I not say? Where can I do, do that general solicitation? Um, Marty, insight yeah, the, Sure. So um, the, the general solicitation, and this was a, a big deal when, when it was included as part of the JOBS Act. Um, because what it did is it expanded the ability, you know, in doing a private placement, it, it, it basically allowed people to, um, to advertise it and market that, that offering, um, primarily, you know, most of that offer that advertising is done, um, over the internet through web pages or, or, you know, internet or ads or so forth, but really there's no limitation on where those can go. They can, you can, you know, you, you could have it on the back of a, a plane, you could have it on blimp, you could, you know, billboard, um, TV ads, radio ads, I, I think I've seen her and heard it all. Uh, with regards to what you can say that you're, you're pretty um, wide open there, as well. Um, there's no general restrictions on what, or, or specific restrictions on what can or can't be said other than you have your, your, uh, uh, you can't say anything that's misleading. You can't say anything that's promissory. Um, you know, we strongly advise against certain graphics that show, you know, arrows going up on your return on investment. Um, all of anything where you're being, again, promissory or talking about, you know, 2x on your return or 10x on your return, anything like that is would be frowned upon and could be um deemed a violation of um of the the rules associated with that offering but again so it's not not specifics so you can you can be forward thinking but a lot of the a lot of common sense you know applies i'm making an offering mm -hmm. and i'm i'm showing a castle and i'm in and i'm selling residential real estate and that might be 
misinterpret that I'm actually investing in the castle. And there may be, you know, an obvious visual example of um, misrepresenting the offering. So, so from a marketing, so that's one of the beauties of a 506C is, is that ability to say, hey, I can go after the public at large, but I'm going after the public accredited investor at large. Um, so that becomes all, often the challenge for, I think, the investors or, or for the issuers themselves is to say, do I have an offering and am I willing to spend enough time articulating my message and touching those investors on an ongoing basis in order to, uh, to make my offer compelling at the end of the day? Um, from your guy experience, um, and we're going to be dump, jumping into the institutional and the family office side of it. Um, what, what's been the, what's been the, I guess the general approach. I know this is, you're, you're, you're both in the, in the legal side of it. Um, but can you share some insights or experiences with what companies are doing when they're trying to present their offerings uh, to those accredited investors and what the approaches that they might be taking? Yeah, yeah, happy to, to jump in and, and share some approaches. I mean, we have clients who certainly want to, um, you know, put their best foot forward as far as communicating the investment prospects or the prospect of, of returns, but without running afoul of, of saying too much or saying something that might be misleading and, and getting into trouble where there might be omissions. And so what the exercise that we work through with our clients when we're talking about or reviewing the marketing materials is really um, if you are going to provide numbers or projections or past history, you know, how is that calculated? Are there any caveats that need to be mentioned as far as um, how the numbers were, were derived? Um, and then do we, you know, to the extent that there's um, communications around those numbers, are we leaving anything out that would uh, subject us to uh, misstatements or omissions liability, uh, as Marty was referring to? And um, it, it's, a, it's just usually a review and, and discussion uh, for those marketing materials and, and making sure that there's no, no holes in any of the information that's being presented to the investors. And, and like Marty said, it's largely common sense, you know, to the extent that it's not false um, and not misleading, you're, you're generally going to be in the clear. So when it comes to real estate, and we'll, we'll go over to the Reg S's a little, a little bit later, but when it comes to real estate and structuring the deals for a Reg D, um, where do I begin? I, let's say I'm a, I'm new to this and I want to, uh, I've got a development project and I've got shovel in the ground. Um, and we're going to do a, uh, a, a residential property, for example, what, what kind of questions do you ask and, and where do I begin? Marty, you want to weigh in on that? Yeah, sure. Um, so Typically, when um, we have a, a client that's wanting to do a new offering, um, the questions that that I ask are, you know, how much um, and from who uh, are you you're trying to raise the capital? So, uh, in this situation, if somebody came and said, "Listen, we're we're trying to raise, you know, we've got this real estate project. We need to raise a million dollars of of you know equity to go on top of the debt financing that we're that we." have lined up um so then the second question is you know who um if they said uh it's you know a handful of um accredited investors and we know we know all of them and 
uh, we're just going to talk to them, then that, you know, that kind of dictates what steps need to be done. If they said, well, we've got a few, we've got, you know, two dozen uh, or let's say 50 investors, half of which are, are accredited, half of which are not, um, that would drive us towards, you know, using a 506B. Um, and um, I guess the other question is how, you know, how do you want to do this? If they say, hey, we want to raise this capital, but we want to do it over the internet, we want to, you know, send out things, then that that would dictate, again, what what we would do, what exemption, you know, using 506C. But that also that also would dictate those questions dictate, you know, what disclosures need to be provided. Um, if it's just two or three people that are coming together, they're all accredited investors. The amount of disclosure, um, you know, as a rule of thumb, might be less than if they're saying the other example where it's fifty people and some are accredited, some are not. Then the disclosures that you would want to provide to those investors would need to be ramped up accordingly. Okay. So more detail for the non-accredited investor than the accredited investor, or maybe not detail, different. Well, it, different. And, and it's, you can't, it's not different. It's not different from what you would provide them. Everything you have to provide the same information to every investor, regardless of whether they're accredited or not. Um, but if it's two or three, sophisticated accredited investors that come together, they probably don't need a full private placement memorandum with, you know, pages full of risk factors. They're presumed to, to understand the risks associated with that. However, the, the more invest, this is just kind of my rule of thumb, the more investors and the, especially the, the greater the number of, of non-accredited or less sophisticated investors, the more information the company is going to want to provide them about the project, about the, the company, about the risks, financial information, all of that. So that if, if nothing else, it's like an insurance policy or a pseudo insurance policy. It's sure. you're, you, you wouldn't have them come back and say, well, you didn't tell me X. You, the purpose of that private placement memorandum or disclosure document is to say, we, told you the risks, we gave you the financial information, we told you all these things. So um, so you want to broaden the information. Yeah, I, no, and that makes perfect sense. Broaden the information that, uh, that's being disclosed, not necessarily disclosed, that you're uh, articulating to, to a wider audience versus one individual or two individuals is what I'm hearing, which, make, which makes good sense. So, so Reg D, um, it's a US exemption. Um, have to prove that I'm an accredited investor. Um, could be a, le a letter from my CPA, for example. I mean, we do that from a technology perspective just to try to make it streamlined and easier. Um, but now I'm seeing we have uh, clients that are doing a Reg D and a Reg S simultaneously, for example. And there's certain, there's a variety of online restrictions that are associated with that. Um, uh, Tyler or Marty, do you want to weigh in in on the different? Let's start with the let's start with the regulation. Let's uh, we know what a reg reg D is. Let's let's talk about a reg S. Yeah, yeah, happy to to comment on that. So, regulation S is an exemption used to offer uh, securities to non-U.S. individuals in offshore transactions. So that means the individual is not defined as a U.S. person uh, under the Securities Act, and they're not residing in the U.S. And 
um, that exemption can be used in parallel with other exemptions like Reg D. So um, you might have a combination exemption, exempt offering whereby you're offering to U.S. investors under Reg D and you're offering to non-U.S. investors under Reg S. Um, and that there's some additional particulars, uh, you know, the Securities Act is, is very um, meticulous. Uh, there, there, there's often clients that think of perceived workarounds, like what if I open a company uh, outside the U.S.? Um, now it's, you know, I have my BVI entity and, and that's a non-U.S. person. Um, but the Securities Act has um, forecloses those loopholes, things like that. Um, so if you have an, an entity that's wholly owned by a U.S. person, that entity is going to be considered a U.S. person for the purposes of, of that exemption. Um, and, and so it is a great tool for purely offering to non-U.S. investors and, and stacking it with a Reg D exemption. Um, but, you know, in addition to having an exemption that applies in the U.S., if you're an issuer based in the U.S., um, you also need to be aware of the offering rules or the private placement rules in the jurisdiction that your investors reside in. So if I'm offering in Germany or the EU, I want to be aware of the private placement rules in those jurisdictions to make sure I'm not running afoul of, of non-US laws uh, with my offering. And so, you know, we, we've done, especially in the context of digital securities, we find a lot more interest um, from issuers in wanting to expand their their prospective investor pool by offering to non-US jurisdictions. And so that requires some analysis of those, those additional offering laws. Um, and if you want to offer globally, you can imagine that's a, that's a pretty tall task as far as trying to comply with all of those exemptions. Um, there's no standard rule, but there are a lot of similarities across different jurisdictions. Okay. So you've got, so I've got a, for my neophyte side of the reg regulations, so I've got a Reg D, um, it's a U.S. regulation. I've got a Reg S, it's a U.S. regulation. The Reg S is for foreign investors coming in, but the issuers should be aware that that exemption may have, well, that exemption may have some qualifiers on it based on where those investors are coming from is what I'm hearing, mm -hmm. correct? Right. Um, from your legal perspective, do you, okay, I, I, um, I've got a real estate project here, I want those foreign investors. I've decided I'm going to do a Reg D. Um, do I just rent, do I just say let's do a Reg S? It, I guess it would depend on on like Tyler said um, the how why the, the scope or the the uh, reach of the invest of the issuer and, and where they want that offering to go. Like you said. If, in, a, in connection with digital securities, especially that does make it, you know, that these sort of, uh, you know, our um, geographical boundaries are, are have less meaning than they did in the past. And so people want to say, hey, we want to, you know, we want to allow anybody to invest. And one thing that Tyler uh, said that I want to just um, reiterate is that Reg S is great. Basically, that's the exemption for the issuer here in the United States. And what it basically says is it's the SEC saying, we're here to protect U.S. investors. So if you're an investor in the U.K. or in Singapore, we're not here to protect you. 
However, those countries have their laws that are designed to protect their investors. So if you are making a selling effort in, if you're targeting investors in these foreign jurisdictions, um, it is wise to make sure that you are also, like Tyler said, complying with the private placement exemptions and rules and regulations of that jurisdiction. So Reg S doesn't really have qualifiers on the U.S. side, but the qualifiers are on the the foreign side. the side of the the foreign jurisdiction. Okay, so then, so it's probably I'm going to make an assumption, um, maybe not 100 percent accurate. If I if I've got a bunch of known investors that are um, like a lot of uh, a lot of funds may have, they say, hey, I've got my accredited investor pool, and some are some are foreign and some are domestic. Um, I'm, I'm in a much better shape because I may say that I know the jurisdiction that my foreign investors are coming into the Reg S. So those are often just repeat investors. In a, and if I know those investors, it just makes my life a whole lot easier doing a Reg S and a Reg D simultaneously. Um, yeah, presumably, however, if so, say, but say there's 15 investors in there, or, you know, 20 or I, I I think the larger the number, the more attention you probably want to pay to this. Um, but if there's a number of investors and and it is in a jurisdiction where you kind of re- repetitively solicit and, and obtain investments, it, you definitely want to make sure that you're complying with those laws. And so, for example, um, you know, doing that, let's say Reg D offering and then you want to do a reg s in canada that's great but canada and specifically each canadian province has their private placement rules and and prospectus delivery requirements and and rules for their exemptions so if even if you know the investors and have done deals with them before you want to make sure that you're complying with that law so that you don't run afoul of the regulators there and even though you might be 100 percent compliant in the u.s the Canadian regulator would have an issue. No, and you brought up a really good point here. Being a, being a resident of Canada is there isn't a central governing body that's you know like the SEC in Canada. It's each provincial jurisdiction. So and rules change all the time, and that's the tricky part. And that's why you guys get paid the big bucks to manage those changes all the time and, and keep everybody uh, aware of what's going on. Because you're right, what goes on in Ontario today, and I see this in a. And, and what goes on in Ontario a couple of years ago or Alberta changes. Um, so they may say we're comfortable with that uh, investor investing in, whether it be a Reg A, whether it being a Reg S um, in the United States uh, can change. So, so really, really important points to note. And the real reason that, um, you know, we're strong advocates, for, not only from an educational perspective, but also from really you know, recommending that any, any issuers, uh, especially when they're having the conversation, whether it's, again, whether it's a CF, a D, a Reg A, um, to speak to folks like yourself specifically to say, get the best guidance because you do it all day long um, because it's tricky. It's a tricky landscape to navigate. Um, when it comes to Reg Ds, for example, and, and um, we've talked about, you know, things like the hold periods, and I've heard, individuals have come to me and say, oh, um, 
they're, they're freely tradable after freely transferable, or I can do whatever I want after a 12 month window. Um, that's not accurate, is it? I mean, at the fundamentally it's, it's accurate, but if I'm a GP, I can write whatever I want in my, in my offering and the 12 month window isn't just, it, it's, it's, it's a date without doing existential, existential, uh, additional um, um, amendments to that. Would that be a correct statement? Well, so I'm happy to comment on that. I think, you know, if you are not an affiliate of the fund, um, you're going to have a lot less restrictions on the transferability. And so under the, the Securities Act, if you did a, an offering under Reg D, generally you will be able to trade that asset after 12 months, assuming, like you said, there are no GP restrictions baked into the operating agreement or the limited partnership agreement. Um, and to the extent that, you know, you're an accredited investor, you can usually sell that asset to other accredited investors even sooner than the 12 month lockup period provided other requirements are met. And so um, it is relatively flexible. And, you know, to comment on Reg S a little bit, it's even more flexible as far as the transferability. There's different three different compliance periods or holding periods for that asset. Um, and the period that applies really depends on the nature of the asset being sold and the issuer that's selling it. And it kind of it's a tiered compliance period uh, structure that um, is set up to prevent flowback to the U.S. So okay. issuers with the most likelihood of their assets flowing back to the U.S. are going to have a longer compliance period. Issuers where the SEC is deemed that it's, it's a much lower risk of the asset, the investment flowing back to U.S. purchasers, um, it's going to have a much shorter compliance period. And so Reg S also has some some compliance restrictions depending on uh, the status of the issuer. And that's something obviously with digital securities, we're very focused on when we're talking about uh, looping in non-US investors for the offering and, and what their their potential for liquidity will be in the, in the with those distribution periods, excuse me. D no, thank you for that. Uh, define digital securities in the sense that we're, for this discussion point that we're talking about here. Um, and you're referencing, go ahead. Right. Yeah. I mean, I just mean it to, you know, the way I explain it is it's a technology overlay of an underlying asset. So, and the underlying, I mean, the direct asset, the limited partnership interest, the um, LLC unit, the under, the ultimate underlying is a property in this context, but um, the digital security represents one of those interests. It can represent a share of stock, although it typically doesn't given we're using pass through structures for real estate. Um, right now, and I saw one of these comments flow by, I think it was yesterday, what is the point of using blockchain uh, to represent these assets? I mean, right now, the most of what's being done with digital securities is this is just a, a courtesy copy of what exists on the books and records of the issuer. It's not a bearer instrument, meaning you can't show up with that token and say you own it unless the books and records also reflect that. And the point of blockchain and, you know, decentralized context is the instrument is <coughs> of ownership or whoever owns the wallet that has, you know, access to the instruments via their private key is the owner. And we, the reason we, we can't make that happen right now is largely because of, of regulation. 
um, the, the SEC put forth the special purpose broker dealer requirement that says if you're going to allow uh, brokering of digital assets, that's the only business that you can be in. Um, and so all the brokers in the space have licenses currently for other activities, and there really is no special purpose broker dealer out there as of yet that I'm aware of that's been approved for just handling digital assets and is solely dedicated to that. Um, and there's been lots of commentary in the industry on that issue. And, you know, we're waiting to see if it'll be, um, you know, changed so that any broker dealer can can allow for the trading of digital assets to to really use the technology as as it's intended to be. But for right now, um, we still have transfer agents that are recording the books and records and, and keeping the ownership records for these assets. But the whole goal is ultimately we'll get somewhere, get to a point where the asset is the bearer instrument. No, I, 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 that's probably the clearest that I've heard that. I think we, we know where we wanted to end up and the, and the challenge is if that's the case and the bearer of the asset controls the asset and the concept of it's on this immutable ledger, where does it break down? I mean, where does it, you know, we see the, we see the failings of the exchanges um, by not having a third party intermediary that's, or themselves, you know, somebody, you know, who's, who's watching the store, so to speak. Um, where do you see that playing out? Marty, what's your thoughts on that? I mean, we'd all like to have this, I think, personal digital asset world, but if you don't have a third party and, and Hey, Hey, let's be honest. At the end of the day, we have rules and regulations where they're in compliance and the sec, whether we like them or not, but if a security is a security is a security and we try to cross those boundaries, um, where does that line? Yeah. Up? So I think that Tyler said correctly that, you know, we're still waiting. I mean, the regulations are, creating some roadblocks. Some of the roadblocks have just been meshing technology with, with the regulations. And, and um, I know that like initially when we were trying to do um, issue digital securities under regulation A, that a lot of the um, comments back from the SEC related to um, just, you know, how will this work? Tell us how the transfer agents and how do you, um, and the pieces weren't there, which I think they're, they're definitely coming online and, and we're in a different spot than we were five years ago. But, um, I think that, um, you know, that the name of this conference is real estate jobs act tokenization was liquidity. I think that, I think that's representing, these uh, securities, whether it's debt or equity interests, um, is I, I, that's definitely where it's going. And I think right now, creating this um, this record of it on a distributed ledger um, is has benefits, but it, like uh, Tyler said, it's not um, it's not a bearer instrument. It doesn't give you the ability to go and, and claim anything um you know it's just a it's just a replica or a duplication of what should be reflected on other records but i do think it's but i still think that there's um a future in it. and i think that you'll you're seeing more and more you know the tokenization of more and more assets um and 
you know, by tokenization, meaning just the, the ownership of that being represented in a digital format. And it, it, um, no, yeah. So I think it's just, we're still at that nascent stage and, and maybe sometimes we want to get from point A to point B faster than both technology and the regulators are ready for. And, and, you know, so, but, and as we talk about the, the nature of this, this week on the real estate, you know, trying to put some clarity, I guess, when we talk about, you know, fractionalization, tokenization, digital assets, securities, combine them with the regulations. Um, fundamentally, we live in a world of uh, um, rules around these regulations and these exemptions that we're talking about. And in order to comply with them, we can't necessarily do things that somebody might want to do. And I tend to, and I want your thoughts on this, I tend to um, make a comment. And when we get a lot of issuers or a lot of entrepreneurs that come to us and they say, hey, we want to use your tech platform um, in order to do this offering and we want to tokenize the offering. And we say, what does that mean to you? And they say, well, I, I want to be able to digitize my asset and I want to put it over here and I don't want anybody else to be, have visibility to it, you know, towards it except for myself. And the problem, you know, we articulate is maybe I'd like that too. But if you don't want to run a file with the SEC and they often the commentary is, well, they're doing it over there. And I think that's probably the biggest mistake that anyone can make. Just because somebody's doing it over there doesn't mean it's legal and compliant. Um, and maybe we're going to get there. And I think we will get there, but it's just not today. Um, your thoughts on that? I mean, do you, do you I, look, I see a lot of the SEC is going to clamp down, I think, harder in 2023 you know, based on trust and compliance than any other year we've seen. Um, what are you hearing out there? What are you seeing out there? What are you advising your clients in that regard? Yeah, I, I think um, we've certainly heard that story before. You know, we point to this person over here and, and they're doing exactly what I want to do. Why can't I do it? And um, unfortunately, the lack of clarity is it does not behoove those who are abiding by the rules of the road. I think, you know, as regulation starts to um, become more robust and more clear in, in 2023 and beyond, you know, those who have uh, abided by the rules of the road uh, to the extent that they're clear um, will be rewarded. Um, but you're right. It does kind of create this race to the bottom, the lack of clarity, uh, for those who are operating in, in a gray area or, or just flouting the law with no repercussions, it serves no, um, it's a competitive advantage versus those who are actually comporting with, with the rules. And so, um, you know, it's a, it's a very frank conversation that needs to be had and um, at a very early stage. And, and as long as I think we're, you know, we take a very practical approach and there are situations where, there is there is a lot of gray and it's a commercial decision that comes down to the client's risk tolerance. And so um, we're always going to give, you know, not only our opinion on the law, but, you know, our opinion on the, the commercial risk and and what that might entail. Uh, and so those are the, all things that we have regular regularly discussed with our, our clients. No, well, thank you for that. Um, we've got a question here from um, from uh, one of the viewers online. Uh, and it's more to do with the, the documentation for the SEC to, for Reg, Reg, Reg S offerings. And I guess that pertains. Do you submit any documentation to the SEC? 
So there's no court. So with a reg D um, to have the exemption, um, you're required to file a form D. Um, reg S does, there's no form S that needs to be filed. So um, it's self-executing. So, but that form must be posted somewhere. So where, where do we put it? On a reg S? On a reg S. So there's, there's no form. So you, by doing, it's just a, a magic. <laughs> I don't know. You know, it, you, it, 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 yeah, it's something that, so if you, here, here's kind of how we approach it. So a reg S subscription agreement is going to look a little bit differently. A reg S disclosure document is going to look a little bit differently and, and mainly address even, you know, the holding periods, who you can sell to, when you can sell to them or transfer. Um, those items need to be addressed. You would also want in the subscription agreement reps and warranties about them being a non-U.S. person, uh, where they live and so forth. But um, none of those documents are, are filed. And even in a Reg D, the only thing that's filed is what's called a Form D, which is just a, which is just a notice filing that goes to um, the SEC and then and as well as the states where you're selling. It just says we're listen. We're doing a, a private. We're doing a Reg D private placement, but it's not reviewed by um, the regulators. At least not for a. Uh, it's not reviewed and, and approved. It's just it's something that you provide and, notice. And, and, but there's no corresponding document. There's nothing like that for Reg S. Okay, um, but there are stringent requirements as far as who can actually access a Reg S online, for example, where I must the U.S. investor cannot access um, only because we're in the tech space. So we have to look at this and seek legal counsel when we're, when we're assisting clients where they're going to put a button for the application for, for the reg S. It must be gated. There must be a, um, forget the technical term for it, but basically U.S. investors are, there's like a firewall. They can't Ge see Geo that button. Right. Geofence. Thank you, Marty. That was, yeah. yeah. So it needs to be geofence. So little things like that, you know, to say I've got a reg S button and I've got a reg D button over here and I'm doing everything. Uh, but there's a simple technical example. I need to geofence my reg S button so that us investors can't, cannot be clicking on that and going through that offering. Um, they got to go over to the reg D button. That's all. Um, which is, which is an interesting, you know, and maybe Tyler can weigh in on this as well, but it's an interesting nuance to that, right? So one of the issues to qualify for reg S is you can have no directed selling efforts within the United States. And so this concept of having a simultaneous reg D and reg S, it's, it's permissible, but it's, it's also a little bit goofy because just by saying that I go to a website and I say, I'm a U.S. investor and I can invest in the Reg D, but I, you know, I'm not a U.S. investor. I can invest in the Reg S. You know, how are you? What are those directed selling efforts? It seems to me if you have a website that a U.S. investor could access, that looks like a selling effort. But the S, you know, that that hasn't been the position with the SEC. So yeah, hence the geofencing. Well, so they say if you're geofencing yeah. it, we know you have a Reg S but you're not letting me look, you're not letting me click on it. So I think maybe that's, yeah. Yeah. yeah they kind of say, if you're using another exemption, you know, you're okay. But to the extent that you're not, you know, that's a directed selling effort. And I wonder, I don't know offhand if that rule predates the ubiquitousness of the internet um, or if, or if that's, you know, something that was more recent, but I'd be interested to, 
to know if that was something that was, you know, really devised when it was more, you know, mailings and, and, you know, paper advertisements and things like that. And it was much more needed probably. Or it's certainly easy, more easy to manage, I would think, you know, or mm -hmm. delineate. Um, jumping over to institutional, um, from a document requirements perspective, I mean, there, I, there's two different audiences here. I mean, the accredited investor investing in a reg D versus what an institution or what a family office requirement might be more on the institution side. Um, looking for some comments on that. Um, I'm doing a reg D offering and I'm soliciting for, um, family offices and institutional investors, differences, nuances, requirements. Yeah, I'll, I'll comment on that and be interested to hear um, Marty's take as well, because, I, you know, while a PPM is not required under you're going to use Reg D most likely. Um, and while a PPM is not required, it is somewhat of a best practice, um, even, you know, in our experience, even when there are large, uh, large institutional investors, um, depending on depending on the type of, of venture, um, you don't see it really in, you know, private equity too much, but. Um, with respect to real estate investments, you know, there's a lot of information to be uh, to be disclosed. And usually the best way to do that is put it in an offering memorandum with risk disclosures that, you know, they, they're they're going to do more benefit than than harm. You know, there's no harm in providing them. Um, and so we see still PVMs being used as a best practice, even with institutional investors. But it also, you know, Marty alluded, you know, mentioned this. It depends on the number of investors, too. If we're generally soliciting, then we want to have uh, that PPM available. But if we're just going to a couple of people that we've dealt with and, you know, they're in the space, they know the industry, it's going to be hard to say that they weren't aware of the, for them to turn around and say they weren't aware of the risks when they did, you know, A, B and C deal with you already or in, in the same industry um, or, you know, that's their niche. And so um, it's definitely a risk based approach. OK, and, and that makes sense. So it's the more details you provide, um, really the wider your audience and the more due diligence that a, let's say an institution or, or family office is gonna require anyway. Um, uh, and, and a lot of times a, a family office or it's kind of said, it's, it's not required, but um, it is best practice. And a lot of times a family office or an institutional investor as they're looking at project will say, you know, send us your PPM. So um, that's it's it's also just kind of become part of doing business. So that that's another reason that you know it's done. Now I again it it does provide a, a some level of protection and and um, but it's it's also a uh, kind of the standard. Okay. Yeah, it's almost a, if they don't know you, it's a gating mechanism, really. I mean, yeah. how polished is your presentation? How good do you look on paper? You know, if you, if you, if you don't have one or you send them something that's really um, not really not very robust, um, it's going to, you know, they're going to take that uh, and judge a book by its cover, uh, you know, because they're getting lots of these, assume, we assume. And um, it's, it's kind of a gating mechanism in that respect. You're giving them the reason to say no early on. Right. Okay. Um, hey, so uh, in, in some of our earlier panel sessions, we were talking about um, sidecars between reg D's and reg CF's and reg A's. Um, 
maybe you can share some of your experiences from a tech perspective. Um, we do it on a regular basis where somebody's doing a CF and they say, I need to do a reg D and they're using an invest platform for the application. It's going to vary between uh, who the investor group is uh, d differing between the accredited and the non-accredited or the, the hybrid of, of both. Um, and then the offerings are, are different, somewhat different between the reg D and the reg CF or the reg eight when they're doing a sidecar investment, what's been your experience and what's your recommendation in the real estate sector? Do you good idea, bad idea, you're casting a different net and you, but you are structuring your deals differently in such that my CF offering might be different than my reg D offering. Um, comments? Thoughts? Yeah, I think, I think it's, it can be a good idea and it, it can be helpful. I, I think, especially like with the CF, um, because you're limited to the amount that you can invest so, or you can raise under that exemption, whereas a reg D you're not. So if you have, um, you know, if you're doing a CF to try to raise, you know, say you need $10 million, you could only use that CF to raise five. You could have your accredited investors invest under a 506 or reg D offering and um, come in that way that where you have to be careful is that um, that because you are advertising your reg CF just by having a CF you're deemed to be doing a general solicitation mm -hmm. you have to um, comply with not only you have to comply with those requirements but your your reg D offering would would therefore be have to be a 506c um, and if you're advertising you have to take the higher law of, of the reg CF advertising requirements which there are limits or there are restrictions on what you can and can't say so you can't okay. say whatever you want over here to the reg C to the sorry to the to the uh, 506c guys and then the limited stuff here it's it's deemed to be the same communications to everyone so there there are some some nuances to that but um it, it definitely is something that that makes sense yeah no super important point that you just made there it's just make sure that you're clear to the audience that you're doing both of these and it's and it's perfectly acceptable you're doing hey i'm, I'm going to raise five million here and i need 20 million over there and maybe i started a cf and i'm not moving into a reg a right now for example and try to uh, accommodate both of them um but yeah no that makes perfect sense so yeah i mean from a legal perspective i can have a cf and a reg d and a reg a all at the same time legally can i not usually you see yeah. one rolling into the other but there's no there's no legal requirement that says you can't do all of them I generally yeah. see one rolling into the other, but a reg D is a sidecar to a CF and a reg A potentially simultaneously when you're at different locations on the web for, you know, going for those different audiences. Um, yeah, it, you just, there's different requirements for each. And I think you just have to make sure you navigate through that with the amendment to, you know, a couple of years ago to reg CF to allow testing the waters um, that kind of, makes it not it makes it less difficult because you before you before you did a reg cf you, you just couldn't say anything so now you know that's one less bear trap to step into i 
So one of the questions that comes up a lot, and I mentioned institutional, for example, or even family offices, was the old adage of, oh, I don't want too many shareholders on my cap table because they're not going to be interested in that. Uh, my takeaway from our experience has been not necessarily true. It used to be when technology didn't facilitate that or the perception of I've got too many chiefs at the table, so to speak. So if I've, I'm looking more in the VC world where I'm coming in and saying, okay, I want to be the lead and, and, and I want a, a seat at the table and I don't want too many investors that can perhaps influence my position. Um, but when it comes to the democratization of capital to the crowd, tech says, I don't know, we got 100,000 people on the cap table and they're common shareholders. Um, also says I might have a following and brand advocates and an audience. Um, do you see that dissuading any family offices in that regard? If they're coming in on, a, let's say, a, uh, uh, different terms because they're a large investor into, you know, an issuance that they might like. Comments on that? I mean, yeah, I think the issue you're highlighting is one of control. And um, in, in most of the circumstances we see these assets or the interests don't don't have any voting rights attendant to them. And so um, what you're concerned with in the VC context, as far as, you know, a board seat and different control provisions and, and different rights for different investors um, is not necessarily going to rear its head in, in a lot of these real estate contexts where it's just an economic right at the end of the day. And yeah. um, absent any sort of, you know, abridging of rights, decision to abridge the rights of the interest holders, uh, you're not going to need their vote for for most of the activities. And so um, that, yeah, it's not really as much of a concern in that context. And. No, and that's what we've been experiencing some. But it used to be, I, I never quite understood the context originally when they said, you can't have too many shareholders. And I, in back of my mind, I'm going, I don't know. I've never said that in a public company, you know? <laughs> so but you might, yeah, it might be a reference to that 12G rule that we were referring to with the 2000 investors. You know, you don't, you, you want, lots of companies want to avoid that, that public reporting requirement that comes along with, having that many investors if you also have the requisite amount of assets. And, and, and that makes, well, let's elaborate a little bit on that. So we talk about that fully reporting on a, on a reg D um, after 2000 investors or the um, asset threshold. When it comes to, I'm doing a reg CF, I'm doing a reg A, I kind of unlimited number of shareholders. When well, a reg A you're, you're still reporting. Um, but, Give me some insights on the different types of reporting um, as a fully reporting company in relationship to the different exemptions. Yeah, so, and, and maybe this has been touched on in other um, sessions, but, uh, you know, a, a fully reporting company is a company that is required to, you know, report under the 34 Act, and that's what we deem as a public company. Um, and they're required to file annual and quarterly reports. Um, they're also required to file, you know, statements of ownership changes. There, there's a lot that goes into that. And so it's, um, it's a big process. Sort of, yeah. That's the highest, you know, well, not the highest, I guess if there, you know, there's other types of reporting companies that you have to do more, but, um, with a reg a, um, you're, you're, 
pseudo public in that you do have to make, um, you have to file an annual filing and a semi-annual filing, um, but you don't have to do quarterly reports or, or ownership changes. And then with Reg CF, you have to do an, an annual um, update um, on the company. So there's, it, it's tiered definitely. And, uh, um, but it's also advisable to, you know, unless you want your stock to change or to trade on a, on a exchange or a market, um, most companies try to avoid being a public company. No, and, and fully understand that from a reporting. It's not really the number of shareholders then. And it's if I'm using certain exemptions, I'm reporting in some capacity on a CF, on a Reg A. Um, it's just the level of reporting that I'm actually doing is what I'm hearing here. Yeah, and, and the that trigger, as Tyler mentioned, the section, the 12G trigger is based upon assets that the company has and the number of shareholders they have. However, Reg A and Reg... Um, CF provide um, an exemption from that reporting requirement from from being a, becoming a reporting company. Reg D does not have that um, exemption. So, so if you bring a, on, yeah, go ahead. I was just gonna. So it's another reason that everybody says Reg A plus is probably the best exemption that exists today. If if you're prepared and it, and it suits your your appetite for the raise and, and the due diligence for the filing. Would that be a fair assessment? Um, yeah, it's, uh, it, it's definitely flexibility. A, it, it, it's a good, it provides a lot of flexibility, but it's also more expensive and it takes a lot longer than the other two. So no, they all, it sounds like, and I think we're getting in the top of the hour here. They all have a purpose and they all have a home at, at different stages. Um, and there are just more opportunities for the for individual companies today to to look at what their options are. And and by speaking to Tyler and Marty, they can give you some infinite wisdom on strategies and structure uh, early on, rather than jumping into one or the other or all three. Um, would that be fair? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I want to thank uh, both of you. Um, every time we have these sessions. Um, if, if, if you can get one good idea that came out of it, I think they're invaluable. And I always get a great, a great new takeaway and I always learn something. So Tyler, Marty, I want to thank you. Um, and I want to uh, thank our, uh, our online audience for sitting in and participating um, until tomorrow. Uh, wishing everybody a great afternoon. Thanks so much, guys. Thanks for having right, me. Thank you.